you talk this evening, I would like to talk about the, the knowledge of wisdom and compassion. Mother Teresa once said that we are not so much asked to do great things in our lives. Much more we are asked to do small things with great love. For me, this simple and yet very profound statement is very much a reminder of the heart of this journey. And in a way, it could be used as a description for the practice of mindfulness. Learning how to do small things with great love. Learning how to bring a quality of reverence all that we do in our life, learning how to bring a relationship of respect and sensitivity to the smallest gestures and the smallest movements in our lives. I feel that in meditation practice, the one thing we are asked to learn most deeply is actually the power of compassion the power of love, and the power of reverence. The Buddha was once asked by Ananda. Ananda said, Would it be true to say that a part of our practice is for the development of loving kindness and compassion? And the Buddha answered and said, No, it would not be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness and compassion. Now, it is actually very easy to become really a little bit lost in our journeys at times. Sometimes it seems like meditation is a very intricate and complicated procedure. But many times the complexity lies not in meditation, but the complexity lies much more in so many of the personal agendas that we bring to meditation. For example, sometimes people become very, very worried and very anxious about the depth of their concentration about whether they're progressing or whether they're regressing, whether they're having the right kind of experiences or the wrong kind of experiences, even if they're even breathing right. Sometimes it's very easy to become lost in our own way of, of measuring ourselves in this practice as if it is a kind of improvement exercise and feeling that, yes, if I had more moments of concentration today than yesterday, then I'm doing better, or I may be doing worse if I lose it. Or we can also become lost in our own issues, our own ideas of how we should be, and what we should achieve, and what we should get rid of it. Then I think in those moments when we become lost, we do at times forget that the heart of this practice is really dedicated to 
to the end of suffering and sorrow and dedicated to being awake. And there are many, many moments in our journey and in our lives when the bridge between suffering and being awake is actually compassion. It's not figuring things out. It's not working things out. It's not getting rid of things. And it's not in becoming more perfect. It's a bridge. It's often the simple capacity to learn how to bring compassion, to embrace all that is in this moment. And sometimes we think, well, meditation can't possibly be this simple. We are tempted also to think of compassion, perhaps in terms of very grand deeds or very great sacrifices. We've heard the stories of the bodhisattvas who have laid down their lives to save the smallest creature. We may think of compassion in terms of very dramatic gestures or renunciation. And of course, then we also think that we must leave compassion to the saints or the Buddha. Another way that at times we are tempted to think of compassion is to think of it as a state or a destination that we perhaps are going hopefully to arrive at, but most probably much later in our journey. And we think that first, Before compassion, first we must deal with these things like resolving our issues or making ourselves more pure or making ourselves more perfect. There are many things we can say about compassion. One of them is that we do not have to be worthy, nor do we have to be perfect in order to be compassionate. We actually only need to know how to be present and how to be awake. We don't have to make grand gestures and dramatic renunciations in order to illustrate compassion. Sometimes it is in the very simple words we speak, the very smallest gestures that we make, that we learn how to embody a sense of love and compassion in our lives. We don't even need to have a lot of meditation credentials to be compassionate. We don't have to have the prerequisites of having chalked up 10 or 15 retreats in the past. We need simply to know how to listen well. It is not more prescriptions or more formulas or more knowledge that enables us to live in a compassionate way. It is knowing the art, the simplicity of knowing how to each attend to each moment in our lives wholeheartedly, without resistance, that this is the home of compassion. Compassion, I feel, is not simply a mind state or a feeling that we direct towards a specific instance of suffering so that we feel sorry for someone 
or we feel particularly compassionate towards someone who is going through great trouble. Compassion is much more a living relationship. A relationship that we embody and that we form and that we nurture in each moment in our life. It is a relationship, a way of seeing, a way of being present in this world and within ourselves. The greatest manifestation of compassion is in receptivity and our capacity to listen well. One of the ways in which the, the Buddha mind is depicted is in the deity of Kuan Yin, a Chinese goddess. And Kuan Yin translated means he is a, the, the, day, the Buddha of compassion. And Kuan Yin translated means one who hearkens to the sounds of the universe one who listens to the sounds of the universe. This is actually what the path of compassion is really concerned with. Not so much with fixing the various manifestations of suffering, not to ignore them, but not fascinated with finding strategies and prescriptions, not fascinated with finding the right words or the right actions, nor is compassion concerned with placing blame. Essentially, compassion is learning the art of knowing how to listen well. Knowing how to have such a quality of attunement and communion with the moment that we are in, that we are moved and touched by all of our world, inner and outer, and yet receive that world with this quality of equanimity and balance of wisdom that frees us of resistance and reaction. Listening, learning how to listen is actually, I think, the most profound spiritual teaching. If we learn how to listen well, everything that we need to know about freedom, about communion, about interconnectedness is actually revealed to us. Listening well reveals to us very profoundly the illusoriness, the transparency of separation, of division. All beings are interconnected. This is nature's primary law. This is the most essential of spiritual teachings, that all beings are interconnected and interdependent, interconnected both on relative and on ultimate levels. We all depend upon each other for our very lives, for every meal that we eat, for every garment that we wear, for every shelter that protects us. For every breath we take, we are beholden to someone or to something else. Just as we create for the world around us those same very necessities of survival. 
We are interconnected in terms of our well-being. We cannot care for self and neglect other. We cannot neglect other and care for self. We are interconnected with all of life in our capacity to feel both joy and pain, both happiness and fear. There is no life, no life form, that is exempt from pain, from sickness, from loss, from grief, from terror. These are the threads of feeling that run through all of life and all of experience. And there is no one who is exempt from these experiences. So equally, there is no one who is exempt from the need for compassion. Because in and through all of these, these threads and all of these life forms, it is compassion that heals us, that restores us. It is a quality that offers us a sanctuary from pain. All beings are interconnected both in their capacity for delusion and in their capacity for wisdom. We all hold within ourselves the possibility of perpetuating and fostering delusion in our lives. And the primary form of delusion is the belief in separation. I and you, us and them, inner and outer, spiritual and worldly, higher and lower, these are all the dualities created by the mind which is lost in its own vision of separation. This belief is actually the forerunner of all sorrow, the forerunner of all suffering in our world. Can there be judgment? Can there be prejudice? Can there be greed? Can there be anger? Can there be fear? Can there be self-centeredness? without any of the, without the belief in separation, as being a reality and a truth to uphold. Separation is the parent of hatred and of violence and of prejudice. When we believe ourselves to be separate, essentially, from all other selves, then it does seem that we live in a world that is filled with opponents and allies. We feel to be surrounded by potential threats and by projected safety. Isn't this true? We move through our lives and we think this person will harm me, this situation will destroy me, this person will hurt me in some way, this person will offer me sanctuary, will flatter me, will enhance me, will protect me in some way. So often our lives are governed by the places and in the people in which we have projected this opponents and allies. It is a world of struggle. It is really a world of struggle. The most essential form of delusion is to be exiled from that which is most true within ourselves. To believe 
in our images and our conclusions and our descriptions and our histories to be the truth of who we are. The mercy center form of delusion is to believe ourselves not to be free, but instead to believe in limitation as our description, to believe in boundaries rather than horizons. All beings are equally can interconnected in their essential nature. All beings are equally interconnected in the truth of their being. We'd like to read you something. From Huang Po. It says, The entire visible universe is the Buddha. So are all sounds and all things. Hold fast to one principle and all others are identical. On seeing one thing, you see all things. On perceiving one mind, you perceive all mind. Glimpse one truth and all truth is present in your vision. For there is nowhere at all which is devoid of the truth. When you see a grain of sand, you see all possible worlds, with all their vast rivers and mountains. When you see a drop of water, you see the nature of all the waters of the universe. Ordinary beings are the Buddhas just as they are. The Buddha is one with them. Both have the same nature, the phenomenal universe and nirvana, activity and stillness. All have the same nature. Learning how to listen well. This is what meditation is actually all about. It is always the right time to put aside our ideas of progress and regression, of attainment and non-attainment, to put aside our ideas of good and bad meditations and high and low experiences. All of these words and these hierarchies actually have very little to do with meditation and very little to do with compassion. Instead, all of these ideas and hierarchies have much more to do, if we were quite honest about it, have much more to do with self-image and what we want from meditation. Of course, we feel much better about ourselves if we're able to say, I have a good meditation and a high experience and I'm progressing. And of course we see ourselves feeling much worse about ourselves when we say, I'm regressing, or I have a terrible sitting, or my mind is a mess. But these descriptions, in being lost in them, in a way we really forget what we are here for. And it's difficult to listen well. It's difficult to listen well when we become so entangled in our notions about performance and appearance, about perfection and imperfection. All that we are asked actually to do in this practice is to learn how to listen wholeheartedly to the sounds of the universe in each moment. I think we can say that this is what meditation is. This relationship 
this living relationship of acute and wholehearted listening. It is a relationship of compassion, a way of being present in this world and in ourselves where we make no demands. As in seeing this, we also do see the why meditation is actually at times so difficult and so challenging for us. We have a history, a sometimes a lifetime, of having been trained in learning how to be present within ourselves and within our world with demands and with expectations, with ideas of how all things should be. It is not easy to live without conditions. A great sage once said that this path is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Instead, we may indeed find that we live in a world which we fill with our preferences. We see that so much on retreat. We are so happy to listen to the sound of a bird but a neighbor sniffling, this is not on our agenda of what we would be willing to listen to. We are at times happy to listen to unfolding insight within ourselves, but the chattering mind, this doesn't fit in with our idea of what we should be listening to. We are perhaps willing to attend very wholeheartedly to those moments when we feel spacious and calm, but the aching knee, this is a distraction. We learn how to make endlessly these distinctions and these differences. And it is in a way, it is a way of creating conditions, both for listening and for compassion. Mostly we find ourselves withdrawing from all that which we have labeled as unpleasant. And at times we withdraw because we do not feel able or do not feel it's possible for us or don't even trust that we have the capacity to extend compassion in those moments. We must be very careful in our relationship to the difficult, understanding that it is often in the face of the difficult that we learn most deeply about the power of compassion. Now there is a story of of a nun in China who had undertaken a practice of, of developing compassion. This was the whole of her practice. She had an altar on which, upon which she had the deity of Kuan Yin. And every day she would chant mantras of compassion and make offerings and sit before this altar and meditate about compassion. Until the day that a new roommate moved in who happened to be a very annoying type person you know, who always wanted to talk to her and distract her and wanted to gossip and wanted to eat all the time. And then Nan thought, well, you know, this person is just destroying my meditation. I am certainly not going to share my merit or my compassion with her. So she created a funnel in front of her Buddha so that when she lit her incense, she could place it inside the funnel. And her irritating neighbor would not even be able to enjoy the smell of her wonderful incense that she offered to her Kuan Yin. Well, sure enough, after lighting this incense for a period of time, her deity turned completely black from having this smoke funneled onto it. 
This is the way in which we must learn the ways in which we too try to hoard compassion as if it is sometime, somehow a personal possession that we can select where it extends. Because actually every condition that we make about listening, well, every condition that we make about openness or about welcoming what is, those conditions in a way are a little bit of a renunciation of compassion. We talk often about breakthroughs in meditation. Of course, many people come to retreats hoping to have some grand breakthrough. The greatest breakthrough in meditation is breaking through our resistance to being with what is. Being able to let go of our shoulds, our demands and our conditions. This is actually both the beginning of meditation, the beginning of compassion. Our challenge in this practice is actually learning to do small things with great love. Beginning with learning how to bring a wholehearted and loving presence, a willingness to welcome with an open heart and a clear mind, all that arises in each moment without any conditions. To learn how to refrain from our judgments that evaluate what is worthy of compassion and what is not worthy. To learn how to refrain from our evaluations of what deserves our attention and compassion and what does not. This is where we must understand the place of wisdom in compassion. We are asked to be empty, to be compassionate. We are asked to be empty of judgment and condition and projection to be compassionate. In every moment that we are able to refrain just once, just a little bit from our judgments and from acting upon our judgments. Every moment that we are able to refrain just a little bit from aversion and acting upon aversion. In that moment, there is actually a grand renunciation taking place. In that moment, actually, there is a renunciation of both delusion and separation taking place. In that renunciation, we are actually learning how to honor this moment and how to honor that which is most true in ourselves and in another. You think of the examples in a retreat. Perhaps somebody offends you. This is, it's easy to be offended on retreats. I have to say this. Somebody offends you. You know, it's not something major they did. You know, maybe they cut in front of you on your walking path, you know, or, or sneezed in your soup or something along those lines, you know. And you feel offended. You know, why have they done this? They must be in such a terrible person. Of course we are silent here, so we are really actually free to draw as many conclusions as we wish about each other. You know, they are a terrible, mindless, insensitive person. Now, if we become stuck with those judgments, how do we see that person in the next moment we encounter them? How open do we feel? How much innocence do we bring that to that encounter? 
Do we see them at all? Or have we just simply begun to live in the world of our judgment? Now to be able to refrain just that one moment from our judgments, are we not perhaps honoring the possibility that there lies within this person who sees bef- who we see before us a quality of truth, an interconnectedness between us, a capacity for freedom that we share. Are we not learning how to honor that wisdom and honor that person? Just likewise, I must say, we do to ourselves. To receive the world, to listen to the world, and to listen to ourselves in a spirit of loving emptiness is the most profound gift we can offer to another person or can offer to ourselves. In those moments of loving emptiness, we actually do travel the path of the Bodhisattva, where we are committed to the end of suffering and the end of separation, where we are committed to awakening to all that is most true in ourselves, to most true in all of those around us. It is a great challenge to learn how to do this. It challenges us psychologically, emotionally, it challenges us in our hearts. Often it just seems so much easier to travel the path of distance and separation. Often it just seems so much easier to avoid things or to react to things or to accept our judgments as being the truth. But in traveling the path that at times seems easier, I just feel we do a great disservice to ourselves and we do a great disservice to our world. We live in a world where there is immense suffering where the gap between those who have and those who don't have consistently widens, where the gap between those who are afraid and those who are safe becomes bigger, where there is an increase in hunger, in fear, in violence, where they are the shadows that darken so many people's lives. We also live in a world where the addiction to greed to pleasure and to heedlessness, the diseases of fear, where these addictions actually escalate the spiral of suffering. It is true that there is no life that is untouched by pain. It is also true that for countless lives, pain is a constant companion. How do we respond? How do we respond to pain in our world? How do we respond to pain in our own lives? There are different options available to us. Sometimes, in the face of pain, we become fearful, and sometimes we become angry. When we don't know how to listen well, we become fearful, or we become angry. Sometimes we become fearful and feel the need to protect ourselves, to distance ourselves, to numb ourselves or to distract ourselves because we feel we cannot accommodate the face of pain that we see in people who are homeless on our streets, 
and people who are lonely, and people who are alienated, we feel we cannot accommodate it. Or at times we feel we will be overwhelmed. So we use the mechanisms of numbness and distraction in order to preserve separation. Sometimes we fear that we will be incapable of response if we listened well. We also fear at times that it could happen to us. That if we listen too well, we're too close, it could happen to us. Other times in the face of pain, we become angry and we shout at our world and we want to find out whose fault it is and to make blame. And it is true at times that anger in our lives can stir us into a kind of exploration and, and creativity. Yet it is also true that when we are enraged and in anger, we are also married in a very essential way to all of those who perpetuate pain in our world. And so I had a friend who lived at Greenham Common during the peace camp there. And you know, all of the women there were very wholeheartedly dedicated to ending this kind of armament to bringing about peace. And one day there, there was a very much larger demonstration where the, where the fences of the camp began to be breached and, and riot police were called in. And they came in in a very violent way, kind of swinging their, their, their batons, their clubs, and kind of knocking people over. And, and this woman saw the woman beside her get hit in the face with a nightstick. And in that moment, she felt so angry that she found herself bending down and picking up a rock and throwing it in the face of the policeman who had hit her friend and split his bleeding. And in that moment, she realized that actually both her and the policeman were actually married in a very essential way. Now, they were both married in the way that they were touching the world in that moment, that they were both acting in anger and scarring those before them. We need to be aware we need to be aware of where we follow the avenues of anger or of numbness. And really question whether there is not another way of responding to pain. And whether another way of responding cannot be born out of learning how to listen well. I do feel that learning how to listen well, the message that we learn, is that the only true response to pain is one of compassion and one of love that this is the primary expression of insight, that the person that we see before us is actually no other than ourselves in a different form, with the same potential for delusion and for wisdom, with the same desire for happiness and the same yearning for the end of fear, and that beneath the world of our appearances we see ourselves reflected in the endless mirrors of other, of other people. Compassion, in this sense, is not always dramatic. Compassion is very often a silent laugh. When I was in India, I visited the, the home for the dying established 
by Mother Teresa and her nuns. And it is true that to enter that building was to enter a true sanctuary, a sanctuary of peace, a sanctuary of care. And then it was a tangible feeling all around you. Although this building was filled with the most outrageously sick and diseased people nearing the end of their lives, who'd been picked off the garbage heaps and out of the gutters in Calcutta. Yet the moment that they entered that building, they were treated as if they were God. There's no doubt that every nun who worked there, every nun who served there, learned to care for the sick and the dying as they would care for their own child. And somebody once asked one of the nuns, well, you know, doesn't, doesn't this bother, you know, bother you, you know, you're treating these people, they're covered with, with leprosy sores, you know, they're, 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 they're t- tuberculosis, you know, they're dying, they're, they're, they're filthy. And the nun answered, no, that every time that I wash one of these bodies or bandage one of these bodies, I am looking into the face of God. Now, compassion, I feel, must carry, or actually is born, of this understanding of emptiness and of selflessness, and is concerned with honoring this spirit. Now, in a place such as the home for the dying in Calcutta, of course the nuns know that this stream of dying people is actually never going to stop. There will never be an end. And even if someone recovers, they're only going to return to die another day. You know, that there is no cure, actually, for the the sorrow of their experience. There is no effective way at that moment in their life of ending it. And yet, they serve in that spirit of freshness. That what is important in that day is not just prescriptions and formulas and doing things right. What is left is the simple capacity to honor the life and the dignity and the essential freedom of another human being. Learning to live with that quality of compassion and knowing actually that right action is guided by that compassion in our lives. It is a way of living in actually where we demand no results from love that is offered. We are to condition to condition to believe that something is only worth worthy if we can somehow measure its effect. You know, we can see, well, I'm changing something, or I'm transforming something, or I'm making a difference, and so that makes my action right. We are conditioned to look for evidence, to look for worth of our actions in the world. But then in that, so often, self very often becomes invested in our actions. (coughs) Yes, I will be compassionate here because I make a difference, and not here. I will give, but not to you. Now, the nuns who work in the home for the dying, they are not particularly, you know, they weren't born saintly. You know, often they are coming from, mostly from very simple, ordinary backgrounds. And yet they are learning. They feel themselves to be in service to compassion. There is a certain compassion, I feel, involves a certain commitment to choicelessness. 
Now, we make choices in many ways in our life. Sometimes we make choices out of fear and ignorance. We say, oh, I'll do one thing because I like it and I won't do something else because I don't like it and I want to avoid it. Or sometimes we make choices that where we ask, you know, well, who's going to benefit? You know, will I benefit? Will somebody else benefit? And then we make choices in our actions. Sometimes we make choices out of compassion and wisdom. You know, saying, this is the path I will follow. I will learn to serve I will learn, learn to serve my world in a spirit of love. I will learn to dedicate myself to clarity. Eventually in our lives, we also learn about choicelessness. The more we know how to listen well, the more choiceless actually do our lives become. The more clear we are in ourselves, the more attuned we are inwardly to wisdom, to knowing intuitively, what contributes to freedom and well-being? To knowing intuitively what detracts and undermines freedom and well-being. The more closely we are attuned to that quality of wisdom within ourselves, the more choices do our lives become. Because it becomes impossible for us to act or to speak or to live in such a way that harms or undermines the well-being of another in any way. It becomes impossible for us to numb ourselves to pain. It becomes our listening and our responses actually become choiceless. I always think of retreats as a wonderful opportunity to explore aversion. You know, there are a lot of things we feel a lot of aversion for on retreats, externally and internally. You know, if we invited you to sit down and make, you know, write a little discourse on what you didn't like today, you know, we could probably keep everybody occupied for a good hour or more. You know, we could make comparisons. We would find, you know, yes, there are many things we feel aversion for. My knees, my back, my mind, my personality, my appearance, my performance, my neighbor, my roommate, you know, the food, the weather, the house. You know, we could go on and on and on. We face aversion many times in our lives. Facing aversion also is an invitation to look at what choices we make in our lives. Because aversion is a form of pain, is a reaction to pain. And sometimes in the face of aversion, there are some very familiar pathways available to us. We can follow the pathways of control, of anger, of reaction, of denial, of manipulation, of modification. I think we know all these. We have traveled them many times in our lives. There is another choice we can make. It is the choice of actually reaching for greatness. Reaching for greatness of heart. Reaching for greatness of possibility. Those moments are our invitations to explore the healing power and the wisdom of forgiveness, of renunciation, of allowing, of spaciousness, of acceptance of understanding. 
those choices in the face of aversion we face not just on retreats but in many times in our lives to follow the pathways of familiarity of control and denial of shouting at our world of shouting at ourselves is actually following the pathway of separation and distance to follow the pathways of forgiveness of openness of spaciousness is to follow the pathways of compassion what we do here in meditation is to invite into our lives a quality of communion to learn how to be still inwardly to learn how to be in harmony at one with all things that arise in each moment through the power of our attending and the power of our listening. This communion is what reveals to us that which is most true in the moment, to learn how to honor and to serve each moment in the spirit of compassion. The path of the heart is not always an easy path to follow. And there are many moments that we stumble. Many moments when we find ourselves harsh or angry or resentful or judgmental. But in those moments, they are, where else do we learn about compassion? Where else do we learn about the power of forgiveness? Where else do we learn about the power of listening well and learning. These moments when we stumble are the moments when we learn how to be most empty and most receptive and most compassionate to all things. May all beings live with friendliness. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with compassion. If we could have just two minutes quietly together and then we'll have a walk in here. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.